Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. I'll be reading the scripture for today. I will be reading in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I know that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Thank you, Jackie. Parable, another parable of Jesus. When I first started reading this parable and studying it, I get to the end where he slaughters someone. I'm like, oh, wow, this is interesting. You guys, anyone heard this story before? I'd heard this one, but I had always kind of thought of the parable of the talents. You guys heard that story and, and put these together. They're actually two different parables of Jesus and a little bit different telling of kind of the same idea. But I saw this parable and I was like, man, this is not going to be fun to teach. A noble man, which obviously in this story is Jesus, at the end's like slaughter them. But as I got into this passage, actually, I don't think it is hard to teach. I think it's actually a really beautiful story. And I think if we look at it, we can maybe understand what Jesus is doing. As we jump into parables, remember parables are meant to be discussed, wrestled with, chewed on. They're not simple children's stories. They're, they're ways that Jesus communicated and, and Middle Eastern teachers communicated that have all kinds of depth of meaning. But as you read a parable, here's what you have to do, especially a parable like this. You have to say, Who is telling the parable? So help me, who's telling the parable? 
Okay, we're going to start you off easy today. We're going to talk back a little bit today. That was an easy one. Jesus is telling the parable. So then you have to say, what do I know about Jesus? Because again, if you just read one parable, especially like this one, where at the end it's like slaughter them. If you read that out of context with no knowledge of the character, that looks bad, doesn't it? Anyone else feel that? Like a little bit of a cringe? Yes, but if we look at Jesus and who he was and who he represented and, and the person he was, now we can begin to bring clarity to a story that he tells, saying, okay, we know from all over the Bible who Jesus is, what he was about. Now, based on that knowledge, what is he communicating? And with a parable, why? Why did he tell this parable when he told it? There's always a reason. Remember, Jesus is not just a storyteller that likes to entertain you with good stories. There's a purpose. There's a reason. Luke jumps into this. Verse 11. Jesus tells a parable. Why? Because he was, two reasons, near to Jerusalem, and because they, the people, supposed the kingdom of God was about to come, to appear. So let's get the context. Why did Jesus tell this story? Number one, he is right next to Jerusalem. He's 15 miles north of Jerusalem. He's about a week away from being executed. We're that close. Knowing that he is getting ready to leave his disciples, to be taken from them. He tells them this story. He has something to communicate in light of what's happening. And we've talked about this a couple weeks ago with the kingdom because they still have people, Israel, the disciples, the Pharisees, still have a misrepresented idea of what the kingdom is. They think the kingdom is Jesus coming with a, with a, a horse to, to kick out the Romans and, and take charge. So Jesus tells this parable to keep teaching them, no guys, it's different. It's different than what you think. Verse 12, he said, therefore, noblemen, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and return. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Okay, you can imagine the disciples hearing this. Okay, a nobleman goes to a far country, he leaves, one day to return. And, they, and, they, and you can imagine, they, they leave this story of Jesus and they're sitting around a fire. Okay, what do you think he meant by a nobleman leaving? Now, in a few days, oh, you get it? He's preparing them, he's teaching them. So he sets up this parable as this nobleman, some sort of, uh, of leader in the community, goes to a far country and, and he's going to receive a kingdom there, but he's going to return. And he calls ten of his servants. Okay, and so as Jesus tells the story, he, he, set, he says there's ten servants, but as he tells it, he really only tells it for the, from the, yeah, I can't talk, from the perspective of three Okay, and it says he takes these ten servants and he gives them ten minutes. So the idea is there's ten of them. He gives one minute to each one of them. Now, the question, what's a minute? A minute is three months salary, like common worker wage, three months salary for just a common worker. That's what a minute is. Now, if any of you were here on Wednesday, we had a whole nother level of insight to this parable because our friend Bo Beard, who's a little, he grew up in the sticks, was reading this scripture, and he got to the point, place of a man had a minna, and he looked at me, and he said, how do you say that? I said, minna. Minna, like for catching crappie? Like in the microphone Wednesday night in our gathering. 
So from that point on, every time we hear the word minute, we think of a little fishing minute for catching crappie. Actually, at one point in my sermon, I said minnow, talking about a minnow. So we're just going to go with it. A, a minnow, what's a minnow? It's a little, little fish that you catch crappie with, okay? But in the story, it's three months' salary for a worker. So this nobleman comes to his ten servants. He gives them one minnow. Question, whose money is it? The nobleman's. What did the workers do to deserve it? Nothing. One, two, three, to ten. Gives him one minute. What's he tell him? Engage in business until I come. That's what he tells him. Here is one minute. Here's three months' salary. You engage in business until I come. That's it. He doesn't tell them what to do. He doesn't tell them what kind of return he wants on his investment. He says, do business. That's what he says. You hear the freedom in that. I love this story. Again, as I got into the story, all this truth started coming out. Like, do business. That's it. He doesn't tell this one, I want you to do this, this one, do that. No, do business. Verse 14. Now, this is a little like jump out of the, the servant part of this story, which confused me at, at one point, but I think I understand it now. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Okay, so he jumps out of the, the story of these ten servants because this is a noble man. He has servants, but he also leads a city or some type of community. And while he's away to receive his kingdom, remember he's given these servants their minas and they're doing their thing, the citizens of whatever he leads, the city or whatever, go ahead of him and say, we don't want this man to reign over us. Question, what do you think Jesus is talking about? Israel as a whole, the nation. So he says, I have ten, he's, this nobleman has ten servants. He gives them all a gift. They're, they're doing their thing. But while the master's gone, there's this group that's like, no, we don't want him. We don't want him to reign over us. I think Jesus is once again calling out that Israel as a nation will reject him. Verse 15. So this nobleman goes away. When he returns, having received his kingdom, so the idea this nobleman went away and whatever he went to get, he obtained, received his kingdom, and he came back and appeared to the servants to whom he had given the money that he might know what they had gained in doing business. So he comes back to his servants. The first one came before him saying, well, so I, I forgot this part. So he gives them some minutes. I've been practicing drawing fish all morning, and that's as good as it gets. I, Brad came in the office, he's like, what are you doing? I'm practicing drawing fish on, on a piece of paper. That's as good as it gets. So he gives them 10 minutes. He comes to the first one, and he says to him, what have you done? What have you done with my minute? And this first one says, master, I took your minute, and now I have 10 minutes. It's a lot of cropping. I have 10. I invested your money. You told me to do business. I did it, and I got 10. Any, any financial people, is 10 a pretty good return out of one? Yeah, a good investment? Yeah, I, I thought so. 10. What's the master say? Well done. Yeah. Did he deserve that? Come on. 
Yeah, he deserves it. Well done. You were faithful. You did awesome. Like the master delights in like, gosh, you crushed it. So what's he tell him? Because you have been faithful with this and, and you now have 10, I'm going to give you 10 more. I'm going to give you 10 cities. Wow, now that's from, from three months worker wage to 10 cities. That's a jump. Side note, it seems like this master has a ton of resources, doesn't it? There's a whole nother sermon. It's a ton of resources. Okay, here's 10 cities. Good luck. Verse 18, the second came saying, Lord, your minna has made five minutes. And the master says, are you kidding me? Joe got ten. You only got five? No. What's he say? <laughs> yeah. Well done. Five. I had, gave you one. Now you have five. Wow. Financial people. Is that a good investment? Would you play that odds all the time? Yeah. What's he say? I'm going to give you five cities. Five cities. Notice what the master doesn't say. Are you kidding me? Larry, five? I don't know why Larry. I just, first name. You're Larry here. You're like, come on, dude. Really? <laughs> five? No, he doesn't. This is what I, and this is where this story, as I studied it, I was like, I, I think I know Jesus here. And I think I see what he's communicating. He doesn't say to number two, how come you're not number one? How come you didn't get 10? No. Good job. You did business. You did what I asked you to do. He celebrates who he is. He doesn't want him to be someone else, which has to be good news for people that aren't elite. Anyone in there? Yep. Okay. I'll, I'll put my name in there. This is what's cool about as, as we get to see the character of this noble man. Does he want to make a profit? Yeah, do business. But he seems more interested in developing the person than he does the profit he makes. Leaders, businessmen, there's a lesson in itself. He seems more interested in the person and them using their gifts and them tr than he does what he gets from them. We're at the lake house. We have a family lake house on Memorial Day weekend, and uh, we cooked a big dinner. And so there's like, oh, there's all these cousins. There's seven or eight of them. They're all, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, that, that, that um, range. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to have the kids do all the cleanup. And it was, and we had a we had big family. There was dishes everywhere. There was pots and pans everywhere. So I gathered all the kids together. I said, kids, here's what I want you to do. I want you to clean the kitchen, this. And they're like, oh. And I'm like, no, it's going to be awesome. And I watched them, and they start going, and you know what? They, they had fun. They fought a little bit, and someone got soap in their eyes, and all that stuff's going to happen, but they had a blast. Okay, for me doing that, was it about the dishes? Well, yeah, because I didn't want to do them. <laughs> kind of, but not really. What was it about? It was about my kids and their cousins accomplishing something together, helping out, doing something productive, enjoying themselves, making mistakes, making sometimes a, more, a bigger mess. It was about them. That's what I see this master. 
It's not about how much money he gets. It's about his servants taking this gift that they didn't deserve, they didn't earn, there's a gift, and doing business with it. And he seems to be celebrating their success. Verse 20. Then another came to him and said, Lord, here is your one minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So he comes with the third one. Remember, there's Tim. Jesus only tells us three. And this guy says, I have one. Why? I thought you were a severe man. I thought you were a crooked business man, is what he says. Question. From your knowledge of this noble man, where in this story do we get any idea that this man is a hard man? Do we see it? He gave them three months' salary for nothing. He says, do business. He comes back, he celebrates what they've done. Like, if I could inject into the story, I think if we draw another person here and the master comes back and, and he has two, I think the master would be like, good job. Good job. You, you had one, now you have two. You doubled. Here's two cities. But this servant says, I thought you were a hard man. I, I think, I believe you're a hard man. Where does he get this belief? what he accuses the nobleman of. Verse 22, this is where it gets tough. Nobleman, nobleman says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Calls him wicked. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Now, when I first studied it, that's how I read this. And I was like, okay, Jesus is saying that he's a hard man taking. Did you see what I, I messed it up? There's a question mark here. Here's the tone of the master. You thought, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Do you see the question? He's not agreeing with the servant's understanding of the master. He's questioning it like, where would you ever get this idea? And he says, I'll condemn you with your word. Like, if you thought that was me, then I'm a severe man. And this hard man, then what he says, then why did you not put my money in the bank at least? I mean, you're going to get just a little bit of interest there. He Here's what the master does. He exposes the heart of this third servant. It's not that this ser third servant kind of wanted to try some things. This third servant believed the master was evil. And fear kept him from doing anything. So therefore, he just hid his money in a handkerchief because he had a wrong view of the master. He hid it. He didn't try. He lived in fear instead. And it's to this servant that the master calls wicked. Because he had a misconception of the master. He did nothing with what was given to him. And the master says, you wicked servant. Hopefully this, for you, begins to stir up some questions in your heart. What are some misconceptions that I have about God? 
What have I been taught about the nature of God? Have I been taught that God is this big, scary guy with a lightning rod and a, and a frown on his face? Is that my cons- understanding of God? Because I would invite you to push into that misunderstanding of God. Maybe this is an invitation to ask, what kind of misunderstandings do I have about Jesus? Or, or what kind of misunderstandings, misconceptions do I have about the church? Uh, here's the reality. We have some of you that have been coming here, and this is the, the first church you really have been to in a long time or maybe ever. Some of you have been wounded in churches before, been hurt deeply. And I think, and you may come into this church with, with some baggage, and understandably so, some wounds. But I think what Jesus would graciously ask you to do is say, okay, You've been hurt here, but is it possible you have a misconception on the beauty of the church? What it's meant to be. Now, is Hill City a good church? I hope so. Is it flawed? Yes. Will you get hurt here? Maybe. Doesn't make it bad. So for some of you, it's an invitation to ask yourself, what kind of misconception, what kind of Wounds do I have from the past that may be influencing my view of God or Jesus or church? And, and hear me, I don't want to minimize your wounds. I was at a workshop in Houston, Texas a few months ago um, with I don't know, 80, 90 people. And in that room, two or three people in this workshop was at a church. Them coming into a church was a very scary thing for them because for two of them, the church is where their pastor sexually abuse them. Some of you do have wounds from church, and they're understandable. But I think this loving invitation of this master of Jesus would be, can we begin to name some of those wounds and let go of some of those misconceptions? Let's keep going. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one that has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten. And the master says, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine, now, this he's talking about those people that went ahead of him to say, we don't want this man to rule over. Who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, pause. Is Jesus telling them to go slaughter the Pharisees? No. Here's what he's doing. He's getting your attention. Did he get it? I hope so. He's trying to make a point of this story about a master going away to get a kingdom, his servants, two that were faithful, one that was, had this misconception of who he was, therefore did nothing. This delegation of people that said, we don't want him to reign. He's using hard language to get your attention, to wake you up to a reality. And that's the story. So what do we do with this? As I, and we could go multiple directions here. We could talk about the nobleman and his vast resources. But here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask the question, because if you're a believer in Christ, if you're one of his servants, 
You have been given a minna. You realize that? A gifting, resources, a talent, intellect, wisdom. You've been given something. What is Jesus inviting you into? That's the question I want to wrestle with today. Because the, the master comes to these people and says, here's a minna, do business. Here's what I believe. If you're a believer in Christ, Jesus has come to you and said, okay, here's a minute. Here, here's this gifting, do business. Do business. Have fun. It, it doesn't, again, it doesn't seem like this master's overly focused on results. Okay, here's this gifting, and boy, you better get what, no. Here's something, do something with it. That's what I see the master doing. The master seems more concerned with the heart of the servant than he does the results of the servant. Come on. There seems to be from this master permission, I'm going to use this word, to play. Permission to take something that's not even yours, that was gifted to you, didn't deserve it, and to do business, to play, to dream, to do good. What is the only thing that is cursed? Not trying. Do you see that? Not trying. So this is me adding to the story. Okay, don't quote me. Don't call me a heretic. I think if Jesus would have kept this going, I think if he would have told more stories, there may have been this. One guy that was given, oh, that's a terrible fish. Gosh, I just, that, that minute I got crushed. Who got given one? He invested it. He tried to do something with it. And he lost it. Like, there, there was a good investment, not some foolish thing, a good investment, but you know what? I tried and the business failed. Based on this master, here's what I think he'd have come to him and said. All right, let's try again. Here's another one. Now, I'm not telling you that Jesus said that. He didn't say it. This is Daniel saying this. But based on what I know about the master from this parable, I think that's the response. Okay, let's try again. That one didn't work. Here you go. Here's another one. Here's what I see from the master's permission to not have it all figured out. It's permission to fail. Anyone in here failed? Yeah. It's permission to fail. You, believers in Christ, have been giving a gift from God to you. And from this parable, I believe he would say to you, do business, dream, try something, create. You might fail. Good job. Let's go. Be faithful. Is that not the focus of this parable? Faithfulness? Faithfulness. Not result. Faithfulness. Okay, can we dream for a minute? Can we do that together? Okay, I'm going to. This is where I get fired up. Because I, like, as I, when we talk about this with our elders, with our staff, like, as I look across this room and all the people that come to Hill City, for a three-year-old church plant, there are some people, you all, that are doing some amazing things. And there is abilities and capacity here that's just amazing. We're, we are baffled by it. What could happen with the kingdom of believers here, a church, who see this good master, kind, patient master, that has given them a gift and said, do business, 
I want to say do business. I don't know. It says that. Do, do business. What, what could happen with your gifting? If you understand you are called and you are gifted and the master is a good, kind master that says do business, what, what, what if, we dream for a minute, what if you realize that your life is a gifting from God to push back the kingdom of darkness and bring light? Now there's some change getting ready to happen. Yep, sorry Scott. I get fired up, I told you. What if you understand that you are called, you're gifted, and that you're gifted to push back darkness and bring light? Your life, hear me believers, your life is meant to reveal the glory of God. That's the purpose of your life. Your life is meant to reveal the glory of God. The life of this servant as they invest their money that points to a good master that gave them freedom to use their gifting to create more. Your life is meant to reveal the glory of God, to make known his goodness and his glory. So let's ask some questions. Take notes. Would you, would you write some of these down? Some of our city groups are still meeting. I know most of yours aren't. They didn't. Talk about some of these over coffee. I've got some dangerous questions for you. I dare you to wrestle with. Here's a question. What of God's kingdom do I uniquely bring to this earth? You've been gifted. You may not see it. Others see it. You've been gifted. What of God's kingdom do I uniquely bring to this earth that God has given me to push back darkness and bring light? What is it? What's, what's my minute? How about this question? What do I love? I don't mean like I love tacos. Like what do I love? What brings my heart joy? Is it creating? Is it bringing order? What do you love? So you start to wrestle with that question. You might start to get to an idea of what this gifting, what this thing is that God has given me to push back darkness. Like, what is my calling? Here's a question. I invite you to ask this to people that know you. What do others say is my most significant talent or gift? What do others say? What do they see? If you said, hey, to a friend, what do you see is my like, most significant talent or gift? What do they say? How could that bring clarity to what God may be calling you into? Your calling. I love this. I love these next two questions. What thing or where do you find yourself tearing up over others' suffering? When you hear a story, when you sit across someone, when you see them, where do you find yourself moved to tears? There might be a calling there. Here's another question, same one. What makes you angry? I don't mean when the kids make a mess on the floor. I mean, what brings this like God-filled anger to you? You know, Jesus was angry, right? Remember this? Flipped over tables, angry at oppression of women, angry when Pharisees tried to oppress poor, like Jesus got angry. What makes you angry? What, when you see it, you're like, uh-uh, uh-uh, not happening here. That might be your calling. I was sitting across at lunch with a, with a guy in our church this week, 
and I ask him that question. I was like, what makes you angry? And I could just quickly just, we were talking about this. I saw his blood, and he's like, when people look at dudes that have messed up and that, think that's all they are. And he was, he was ready to fight. I'm like, dude, calm down. I don't want any, I don't want any bit of you because he's a big boy. What makes you angry? Okay, stay with me here. What do you look at and you say, hell no. And what I mean by that is kingdom of darkness, hell, not here. Is that oppression of women? Is that orphans? Is that teenage kids in the foster care system? Is that poverty? Where do you look at and you say, hell no, kingdom of darkness, no. Where do you look at and you say, heaven, yes. Light, yes. That may be your calling. I love this. The master says, do business. Here is a gifting. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It's a total gift to you. Do business. Go. Push back darkness. Bring light. It's your calling. And hear me at this. Your calling. I, I talked to all of our worship team folks and all of our volunteers of the gathering this morning before we, we, we came out. I said, listen, your calling is not just what you do. It's who you are as you do what you do. Let me say that again. Your calling is not what you do. It's who you are as you do what you do. So in the, Old, in the Old Testament, there are three offices of Israel. And if you've studied your Bible and studied theology, you know that Jesus came and he fulfilled these three offices. It's prophet, priest, and king. Anyone heard these things before? These, okay, a few of you. In the Old Testament, prophets that would call Israel to faithfulness. They would, they would look to the future, call Israel back to where they're supposed to be, challenge them. They would disrupt the status quo. Priests who would daily offer the sacrifices on behalf of Israel. They would teach them the law. They would keep Israel faithful to truth of the law. Kings who would come and rule, bring order. Prophet, priest, and king. Okay, I read a book called Leading with a Limp by Dan Allender, and he takes this idea of prophet, priest, and king. I'd recommend it. Dan Allender, Leading with a Limp. Prophet, priest, and king, and he brings it into the idea of calling. I thought it was just absolutely amazing. If you don't like it, give me five minutes and, and we'll be done with this. Let's take the first one. Prophet. Who you are, so you're calling, not just being what you're doing, but who you are as you do what you do. A prophet, here's what a prophet does. They bring vision. That's what they do. They, they bring vision to, so in the Old Testament, a prophet would come to Israel when they're comfortable, when they're doing their thing, and he would say, no, we're going to disrupt this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Let's go here. They bring vision and, and, and point to a better reality. They point to the kingdoms. Prophets are poets. They speak in narratives. They speak in, in, in languages and images. They expose current reality. They're not afraid to announce, hey, the emperor, emperor has no clothes on. They're not afraid to name what it is. They point us to what could be. And so he, as Allender talks about this, he says, so today, and this is, some of you are prophets. Now, not in the sense of like, all right, in three months, not that stuff. You have a prophetic gifting to you in, in this type of way. You're a dreamer. You're a visionary. You're not afraid to call people to what could be. Like you look at the status quo and say, no, we're better than this. You're better than this. 
let's go here. That's a prophetic gifting. You stir desire for the kingdom, for what could be, for pushing back darkness. You're a spokesman for hope. You can see the heart, like you can look into people and, and see them and call brokenness, but also call beauty. That's what a prophet does. You live in the tension of brokenness and beauty, and you're able to speak into that and call people to a better version of themselves. As I wrestle through these things, prophet, priest, king, I'm a prophet. Now, don't quote that, but Daniel says he's a prophet, and without context, please. Like, my gifting is to be able to look at an organization and point us to where we need to go, to see what could be that's not yet, and bring clarity to all these complex things and point us in a direction. If I've ever been with you and sat with you, it's like, I'm, and I'm not afraid to say it, I'm gifted to see you and to name what's broken in you, but to name beauty and to call you to something better. Many of you have looked in your eyes and say, I see this, and I could see you doing this. I relate to this, this prophet. Now, the next one is a priest, okay? And a priest brings truth. So the role of the priest in the Old Testament was to keep Israel focused on the law. There's a teaching of the law to the people of Israel. Day after day, the priest would come and offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. This daily service that the priest does. So a priest, remember who you are while you do what you do. A priest points us to truth. They point people back to God. Through ritual, through faithfulness, through the word, they tell the story of redemption. A, a priest is always pointing back to God's been faithful. Trust him now. That's what a priest does. A priest proclaims our ability to, to not keep the law. They're black and white. No, this is broken. This is good. Remember where a, a prophet kind of see both and point you, a priest like, no, black and white. They're teachers of the law. They're storytellers of the work of God. If you're a priest, you're a teacher, and not necessarily a school teacher, but you love to come and teach truth. You love to speak and remind of truth. You like to reorient people back to truth. You're a great storyteller. You enjoy listening to stories. You, you can tell a story that captivates people. You feel others' pain. There's this daily faithfulness to you. You bring rituals, and that brings comfort to the people. A priest. And as, as I look at just our pastors, this is so much fun, and Michael and Brad and I kind of looked at ourselves. Guess who's the priest of the three of us? It's Brad. He's black and white, Right? He's going to point you to truth every single week. Does he do it? Yeah. He's faithful. You put something on his calendar, he's going to be there. We have interns here at our church, college students. He meets with them every single week, hour and a half, boom, faithful every single week with these interns, just teaching them truth. As he does what he does here, it's a priest. Last one, king. Okay, cream creates structure. I ain't me. <laughs> they create structure. 
right? The, in Israel, the king was to come into the kingdom of Israel and look at all the things that need to be done. And the king says, okay, we need roads over here. We need a bridge here. We need trade routes here. We need to connect. That's what a king does. They look at all of the things and say, how do we now fit all this together in a way where there's flourishing for all? They're a planner. They can resolve conflicts. They understand systems. They're a good manager of people. A king has a pulse on all the areas of the kingdom and what's going on at each. And if you're a king today, it's creating boundaries that bring order. Because prophets, we don't like boundaries. <laughs> but we need boundaries. You have great social skills. You're able to bear the weight of leading and take the assassination attempts that come with leading. You're able to protect those underneath you. You're gifted at using your strengths to help people grow in their abilities, to bring clarity and order to the change that's taking place. Michael Robinson. Now, don't you dare call him king. Don't you do it. I'm not going to put up with that, all right? That's what he does. He brings clarity to our organization. One word, spreadsheets. That's what he does. It's a king. So here's the reality. You, and again, if you don't like this, throw it out. Pretend I never taught it. I think it's brilliant. I think it's great stuff. Who you are, what you do. You will be naturally gifted in one of these. Now, in Christ, Christ fulfilled all of these, by the way. Christ was a prophet pointing Israel to what was going to happen. We've seen that. He was a priest offering the sacrifice. He was a sacrifice. He was a king coming to lead the kingdom. He was all three. And in Christ, you have elements of all three. Because of sin, they're all three not complete. You're going to tend to gravitate towards one. Wrestle with that. Who am I while I'm doing what I'm doing? Why is this important? Because you need to be who you are. Not who you think so-and-so so and all I need to be like so-and-so. No, you don't. Who you are, as you do, what you do. Can you name for yourself, I have a gifting. That's not pride. What did you do to deserve the gifting? Nothing. It's humility. I have a gifting. God has given me that to push back darkness. Am I doing business? Am I doing business. Can you name that for yourself? Can you name your calling? One of our, one of our guys in our church a few weeks ago when I, I preached a sermon on brokenness and beauty, he sent me a text. He said, you brought the thunder this week. Thank you for that. And he said this, quote, I'm courageous, not me, him. I'm courageous, grace-filled, ever-present man. That's what he said. When he named beauty and brokenness, he said, I am courageous, I'm grace-filled, and I'm an ever-present man. Now that's a man that will push back some darkness because he knows who he is. Can you take what God has given you and can you do business? Can you quit trying to be the 10 person? You don't have to be. Just be faithful. Do what you can with what God has given you. So let's take, I'm give a few examples. Businessmen. If you're a businessman or businesswoman in here, hear me. A businessman or businesswoman is not your calling. It's your job. Who you are as you are a businessman or businesswoman, that's your calling. Okay, you get this? Remember, 
businessman. It's not that you lead this organization. That's not your calling. That's your job. The question is, who are you as you lead that organization? So I walk into Neighbors Mill uh, a week or two ago, and I see one of our businessmen there. And he's with a couple of our younger guys that are starting their own business. And he's teaching them business. He's mentoring them. And talking with him, he's more concerned with success of others than he, I mean, he wants to make a profit. But he's overly concerned with the success of others. He's like, how can I use what I've been given to now equip and empower other people? Who are you as you do what you do? Businessman, are you pointing your employees to Jesus by, the how, you, by how you lead? Businesswomen, are you conducting business out of your conviction? Who are you as you do what you do? Any stay-at-home moms here? They're asleep. <laughs> I just got a nap. My kid's upstairs. Stay-at-home. Are we here? Thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Stay-at-home moms. Stay-at-home mom is not your calling. It's your job. Who are you as a mom while you're a stay-at-home mom? That's your calling. So let me give you an example of this. As I did this Wednesday, Emily's like, yeah, I'll give more clarity on this. So let me take stay-at-home mom through this filter. Some of you moms have this prophetic gifting, and this is what I mean. Like, you're dreaming for the future of your kids. You're pointing your kids to something better. You're capturing their imagination, saying, okay, what could you do with that? You're stirring them for something for the future. What could be? You're teaching them to take risk. Maybe this is who you are, mom. You're a prophet. Some of you moms are it's priestly gifting. You can come beside your kids and you can teach truth. You're patient. You're faithful. Day after day, you're going to develop them. You're going to tell stories to them that capture them and help them grow into who they are. Some of you moms, you're, you're king. You can bring structure and fairness and order. Like you have a spreadsheet on every day of the week and what time we're to do this, Right? You're a great conflict negotiator, which is needed in parenting. Hostage situations. Okay, moms, here's why this is important. You be who you are. If you look at, if you're a prophet mom that's like, we're just going to create our kids to do risk and try things, and you look at a king mom that has this spreadsheet and you say, well, I'm not like her. You're right. (coughs) You're not like her because you're different. And if you're a king mom that has, boom, man, it's every morning, boom, 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 all throughout the day, and you look at this mom, the, pro- the prophet, it's like, they're doing all these things, you're like, well, I'm not that. You're right, you're not. That's why we need others. Who are you while you're doing what you do? Well, I can't be like so-and-so. Good, you're not supposed to. Jen Stinnett, one lady at our church, can teach Great Bible says, well, I can't be like her. Good, we don't need 50 of her. Someone else, I can bring order, okay, but I can't do that. That's fine. I can't teach like you, Daniel. Hear me, we don't need any more of me. Who are you as you do what you do? And what if you started to step into that and see your life as a gifting to push back darkness? Quit worrying about results. The master, don't seem too focused there. He'll do what he needs to do in you. You be faithful. The only thing that Jesus rebukes in this story 
is not trying. Will you fail? Yep. Will you mess up? Yep. Will you sin? Yep. And then you repent and you keep going. The master rewarding faithfulness. That's the message of this parable. So I believe it's an invitation from Jesus to the church. Say, here is Amina. Do business. Push back darkness. Say, hell no, heaven, yes. Can you step into that? Let's pray.